Hi, my name is Steve. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 36, 5 through 9. Your unfailing love, O Lord, is as vast as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches beyond the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the ocean depths. You care for people and animals alike, O Lord. How precious is your unfailing love, O God. All humanity finds shelter in the shadow of your wings. You feed them from the abundance of your own house, letting them drink from your river of delight. For you are the fountain of life, the light by which we see. The word of the Lord. Good morning, I'm Julie. The New Testament reading found in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. If I speak in tongues of human beings and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a clanging gong or a clashing cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all the mysteries and everything else, and if I have such complete faith that I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away everything that I have and hand over my own body to feel good about what I've done, but I don't have love, I receive no benefit whatsoever. Love is patient, love is kind, it isn't jealous, it doesn't brag, it isn't arrogant, it isn't rude, it doesn't seek its own advantage, it isn't irritable, it doesn't keep a record of complaints, it isn't happy with injustice, but it is happy with the truth. Love puts up with all things, trusts in all things, hopes for all things, endures all things. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Megan. Please stand for the gospel found in John 15, 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the, servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Um, Your bulletins say that we're in a series called Peculiar People. That's actually not quite right. It's one of the few times where we're not uh, exactly in sync with New Life Maine, We are still continuing the series of Church in the City. We're a little behind because we took some time off for Lent to do our series on lament during Lent. So we are in the Church in the City series, which is actually on 1 Corinthians. And you'll recall as we've been journeying through this letter, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, the question we've been asking ourselves is, what does it mean to be the people of God in the midst of the world? How do we live differently, not necessarily against I think the word countercultural, that phrase is used maybe too, too freely sometimes because it's not that we define ourselves by, oh, we are always against what the culture is. That's not necessarily the case. But how do we live as the people of God within this world? And in some things it is different, in some things it is against it, in some ways it's transformative and redemptive, but in all ways it is us as the people of God living under a different lordship living under the lordship of Jesus Christ, living under the reign of Jesus Christ. Evan mentioned this morning, it's Ascension Sunday. The Ascension, is sometimes we, we kind of have this picture that it's Jesus the spaceman, you know, going up. Which planet did he go to? How high? Did he break the Milky Way or is he sort of hovering within our galaxy, huh? 
Instead of understanding that this phrase is used to describe Jesus taking a throne, a throne over the heavens and the earth, that in the first century the heavens were very much like the control room for earth. And so when they say Jesus ascended to the heavens, it's a way of saying Jesus reigns right here and right now. And yes, there is a fullness to this reign that is coming, but we, the people of God, begin to live now as it will be then. And so this whole series on Corinthians is how do we live as the people of God right here, right now? And Corinth is a, unique, is a remarkable um, city because of the mix that it was of commerce, it was a city that had thrived in the Greek days and then lay in ruins for a hundred years when it was overrun. And it wasn't until Julius Caesar says, let's make this, let's rebuild the city and let's make it the capital of this Roman province of Achaia. And all of a sudden he began to have his retired military resettle the area. So it was a military town. But because of its location within, uh, uh, by, by water... It was a trade town, and so business began to boom again. So it's a city of business. It's a city with military roots. It was also the location of uh, games that happened every two years, the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games. So a city of athletes, maybe a city for champions, Colorado Springs. So... So this is, this is a city that we can relate to, and yet it's unique because it is the first time that the church is planted, a church is planted in a major city, in a major city. And so the test for Paul is, look, if the gospel can take root in a city like Corinth, where there, is, there were two major temples that dominated the skyline, you'd wake up in the morning and you'd look up and you'd see there's Apollo's temple And there's this uh, Aphrodite's temple, and you would see pagan worship connected with sexual immorality, commerce, success. If the church and the gospel could take root in a culture obsessed with sex and success and wealth, perhaps the church and the gospel could thrive anywhere. And I think one of the reasons why we're looking, we've been journeying through this letter is to say, wait a minute, this is a little bit like our day. And maybe for some of us, you've been around long enough to remember when America was maybe more friendly towards the church or towards Christianity. And, and it maybe scares you a little bit to think of the shifting tone in culture and to say, wait a minute, how, how do we be Christians in a culture where our faith is being pushed to the margins? And maybe for some of you, that's a cause of concern or panic. But a letter like Corinthians should be of great comfort to you. It says to us, listen, The church has been on the margins before. The church has been on the fringe before. The church has been looked down upon before. And yet there is a way for us to live out our faith, even in a culture that may be at times hostile toward it. Amen? And so one of the specific questions for today is, What is it that makes this work? We're here toward the end of the letter. Last week I taught on chapter 12 and 14, combining and talking about the work of the Spirit in a congregation. And this morning we're doing, as you might have guessed, chapter 13, the love chapter, the chapter that we all hear from when it's, uh, you know, wedding season. But Paul didn't write this, this chapter or this poem, whether he penned it or someone else penned it. He didn't write this poem for weddings. He wrote it for the church. 
Because there's something about being the church that requires love to be at the very heart of who we are. But love is this overused word. And for many of us, maybe you feel a little jaded when you hear love. You're like, oh, here we go again. Love God, love people. I mean, just another Christian cliche, you know. You know, life is all about just loving others, man. And then it's used so much that we're not even sure what it really means. You know, I I had a conversation where someone said to me, you know, I just want our overall ethic to be that we never correct other people, that we just let people be. And I said, you don't really mean that. He says, what do you mean? I says, well, you're a business person. Would you like businesses to not follow any sort of norm? No. What about on the road? Would you like everybody to just drive whatever speed they feel like? Turn? No, I wouldn't. That would be a prop. Right. So we don't really mean that we want a society that everything goes and we live and let live. We don't really mean that. And yet that's how this word love is used. Or we think of love as being synonymous with tolerance. That listen, you know, listen to, to be, we can't be loving, so let's at least be tolerant. And I understand that. There's something right. Tolerance in its root etymology is to bear a burden, to carry someone else's burden. It would do us all good to think about someone else's life and to carry their burden in that sense. That's beautiful. But at the crux of what we mean when people say, let's have tolerance, let's just let it be, I think what we mean is, don't bother me and I won't bother you. And deep down inside, if I asked you, is this what you're really longing for, to be tolerated? Is this the deep cry of your soul? Do lovers say to one another, sweetheart, I tolerate you. (laughs) Happy anniversary, honey, I tolerate you. (laughs) This rings hollow because what we really want is not to be tolerated, but to be loved to be truly known and truly loved. This is what we long for. And echoing in our minds is this phrase that didn't Jesus say, they will know that you are my disciples by your love. And yet even this verse, if you're the kind of person that is a little bit weird like me and you're tuned into the Christian blogosphere, you know when this verse gets quoted most often? When there's a controversy. So, so this is the steps, in case you're wondering, the four steps to become, well, the steps to becoming a Christian blogger, okay? <laughs> Number one, write something sort of flippant and controversial. Step two, act surprised that there's outrage. <laughs> Step three, follow it up with a carefully nuanced, caveat-filled blog saying what you really meant. And then step four, say, quote, Jesus said that, you will know, that they will know you're my disciples by your love. This, is, this happens like every week. This happens. Someone's quoting, they will know you're my disciples, because they've just written a careless... So we're admittedly a little bit jaded when it comes to this thing about love. And we're admittedly a little bit suspicious of how this plays out. What is love actually? Not the movie. (laughs) What is love actually? What is this? 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, we'll we'll make our first stop in these three verses. 
Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Now, I want to qualify this right away. Many of the commentaries, one in particular I've been using is, is by um, a professor named Anthony Thistleton. If you're interested in that, you can find Thistleton has a pastoral and exegetical commentary in 1 Corinthians. It's about this thick. His magnum opus is this thick. That's the full version of his commentary in Corinthians. It's, it, both are fantastic. I use this one. And... Um, <laughs> And, and he says, listen, it's hard to capture the grammar of this phrase because it's not really if I speak, but it would be more, it would be better in English grammar to say if I were to speak. In other words, this is a hypothetical. And it's not only hypothetical, but it's hyperbole. He's picking the most bizarre sort of extreme, saying, look, if I were to speak in the tongues of men and of angels, this is not a proof text for angels having their own language, but we'll leave that alone. But, for, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And then he says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, again, the very definition of a mystery is that which cannot be understood. And Paul's saying, look, if I were to be able to understand all of this, if I have all the faith to remove all the mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I am nothing The first thing Paul's trying to say to his young congregation, a congregation of people who are really enamored by the fantastic. The Corinthian culture loved the spectacular. In fact, they were were well acquainted with pagan spiritual rituals that would give them the feeling of ecstasy and and they thought this is what it really means to be spiritual. So we, we addressed some of that last week when we talked about chapters 12 and 14. But now Paul is saying, listen, the Spirit does activate gifts. But if you don't have love, you won't recognize that these gifts are for the good of the church. You can have all the power in the world, but if you, you can have all the faith in the world. But without love, it's like having a car with a really fast engine, but no steering wheel. I mean, imagine this. Imagine me saying to you, hey guys, you got to check it out. Somebody, I've, I've, just, I've just found on Craigslist a Lamborghini. You know, it's a, the engines, let's go take it out on the, on the road. It's this thing, man, this thing can fly. Just one caveat, though. The steering is broken. Okay, who's in? You're like, well, uh, I, you have all this power, but I, you have no way to aim it. Isn't it interesting that we don't trust people who have power but no love? There's no point having all of the and the rev and the gifts and all of this stuff, but you have not yet learned how to steer it, how to direct it. And Paul's saying, listen, if you don't have this very thing, all of this is pointless. You're going to park that car and never use it because it'll be a train wreck when you do. And man, have we seen that. Have you seen when people want to use God or use the power of the Spirit for personal gain or for status or for fame or for money or for whatever it is to to use it to say, ah, this is about me, this is about building myself up. And Paul says, listen, if love isn't driving the car, you better leave that thing parked because it's just going to result in a wreck for others. Then he goes on and says, let me tell you a little bit about what this love looks like. And this is important for us, because if tolerance on the one side is an enemy of understanding what real love is, on the other side maybe is this concept of, or the, the notion of sentiment, or sentimentality. 
most of us are, have been so immersed in sentiment or sentimentality that we don't know that that actually isn't love. And so think about it. We have all of the right feelings about something, but not enough to actually make us act. That's how you know you don't really have love. You have sentiment. I don't know if you've seen the ads that have said, you know, it shows a picture of like um, an emaciated child, and I think it's being held by Mother Teresa, and there's, they superimpose all around the borders of it a bunch of people giving the thumbs up. And it says, liking isn't actually changing. You know, as in like a Facebook-like. So sentiment is enough to get you to like something. Oh, I love that. Puppies. Oh, hungry children. Oh, I love that. Oh, trafficking. I'm so into that. (laughs) But love says, dear God, I must act, even at great cost to myself. See, sentiment is enough to make you feel certain feelings. But Paul's saying, no, 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 listen, love is far different than sentiment. Stanley Hauerwas, the great theologian from Duke University, is retiring, and he's been called by several others, one of the great living theologians in America. He says the great enemy of the evangelical church is sentimentality. Because we don't actually love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We don't actually love our neighbor as ourselves. We just have the right religious feelings of love. So I like worship music because it makes me feel like I love God. And I like coming to church because it makes me feel like I love someone else. But no, I don't, I've never actually visited anyone in the hospital. I've never actually taken a meal to a friend in need. I've never actually fill in the blank. But I have sentiments. Oh, I just, I just love the church. No, I don't actually give to the church. No, no, no. No, that one was too close to home. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) Now you were with me. Verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Actually, again, Thistleton says the the verbiage and the uh, syntax and the grammar here is much more active than love is. Thistleton recommends it be translated, love waits patiently. Love doing an active thing. Love waits patiently. Love shows kindness. Paul goes on, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And then this great, and poetic ending here, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Many different ways to try to translate this to show kind of the power of this. Thistleton's own way of translating it is love never tires of support. It protects and covers that vision of support. Love never loses faith. Instead of just saying love believes all things, because that sounds kind of Disney, doesn't it? You can have anything you believe if you treat, you know, whatever, you know, it's like, no, Paul's not saying like Disney kind of love, he's saying like, no, like never losing faith, never exhausts hope, never gives up. This is the kind of love that animates the church, the kind of love that never loses faith, that never tires of support, that never exhausts hope, that never gives up. 
Why? Why is this love so central to being Christians? So, well, I mean, you know, it's a good thing, makes society better, makes the world a better place, blah, 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 blah. Paul has a very radical reason. Toward the end of this chapter, he goes on this list here, and he says, listen, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Which, by the way, is a great, simple um, rebuttal to the notion that the gifts are no more because we have love, or because knowledge hasn't passed away yet, right? We still have seminaries open, right? Okay, so, okay. So Paul's point is there's coming a day, though. And then he says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in the mirror dimly, which is a bit of a dig because Corinth was famous for making really excellent mirrors. <laughs> and Paul's saying, your mirrors, you're so proud of your mirrors. Still not the real thing though, is it? Now I see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Nothing compares with seeing face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What did we say at the beginning of this talk? We said we don't want to be tolerated, we want to be loved. And part of being loved is to be fully known and to fully know. Now faith, hope, and love abide These three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul is making the case for this kind of love because love is how we prepare for the future that God is bringing. Now, listen closely to this. Most of us have been conditioned to think of salvation as an I'm getting out of here card. Instead of seeing salvation as God's kingdom breaking in here to restore and to set right. Now, if there were a a kingdom that was arriving, and if I told you that the language in this kingdom is different than the language you have known, but here's the good news. You've been granted citizenship into this new kingdom by no merit of your own. Say, wonderful. Now... Learn the language of this arriving kingdom. Paul is saying, listen, God is bringing a new future into the world, and it's a future defined by this kind of love. And as Christians here and now, we practice this kind of love as a way of preparing for the full arrival of this kingdom. Does that make sense? Let me use an analogy that is, is not perfect. In fact, it involves leaving instead of preparing for something arriving. So take that with a grain of salt. Nancy Wright uses this analogy of saying, if you've been given a holiday in France, the thing you've got to now do is learn French. Now, having just been given a trip to Paris a few weeks ago with our family, I can attest that life is much easier when you speak French. Especially when you're trying to figure out which train goes to Versailles. You know, you need, it just helps to know this language, okay? We didn't. It's easy to confuse us and to say, if I learn French, I will be given a ticket to France. No, that's it. That's not it. That's earning salvation. 
Rather, since you have been given, now begin to prepare. Does that make sense? So we say, since you've been given citizenship into this new kind of kingdom with this radical kind of king, the king who never killed but let his life be taken, the king who told his followers to disarm, this radical kind of king, it's time to learn his language. And his language is love. So Paul is saying, listen guys, the best way you can prepare yourself for the future that God is bringing, it's not stockpiling gallons of water in the basement, not trying to crack the code of the Antichrist, because a lot of that stuff had to do with Rome in AD 70 anyway, but also because that's all sketchy ways to read the Bible. The best thing you can do to prepare yourself for the future that God is bringing is to learn the language of love. Is to learn the language of love. To say, all right, this is the citizenship I've been given. How do I begin to learn this language? Now you say, all right, Glenn, I see it. That's beautiful. Love the whole analogy. I get it. But you know, love hurts. You know that this isn't like sentiment. You said sentiment, Glenn. This isn't sentiment. If we want to talk about real love, that stuff hurts. Yeah, it does. And there are many of you, if not all of you, that could sit down and tell stories of saying, you know what, I took a risk. I loved this person. I was kind to this person. And maybe it was something big, or maybe it was something as simple as, I called the meal group leader, I wanted to come, they never called me back. Whatever. (laughs) So I'm raising three daughters, you know, so yeah, anyway. I reached out to them. Or maybe I've got these friends and we are always the one asking them to do something with us. They never ask us. But you know what? I am tired of taking the initiative. I'm tired. I don't want to. Why? Why should I always take the initiative? Let's be honest, right? This church, I don't know about this church, it just doesn't feel very loving. That is the very moment when you have the opportunity to experience and practice this new kind of love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, it's essential that we become disillusioned with Christian community so that we can be given true Christian community. Because there's a certain point that we're really carrying into our own sentimentalized notion of what Christian community looks like. That we all just smile and love one another and give each other stuff. And Wait a minute, you didn't say someone's going to hurt me. You didn't say someone wasn't going to reciprocate. Amazing thing about what Paul is saying about this kind of love. All human love works on reciprocity. I love you and I hope you love me back. Or I love you because you love me and I will then keep loving you as long as you also keep loving me. I'll like your cat pictures if you like my baby pictures and not, you know. It's this very unspoken rule here. And Paul is describing a very different kind of love. 
Paul is describing a kind of love that is not based on reciprocity. Paul is describing a kind of love that does not respond to value, but rather creates value. It's the kind of love that doesn't respond to value, but creates value. Let me say it another way. This love that Paul is describing is a love that says, I don't love you because you are lovely. You are lovely because I love you. Now think about that. Think about the God kind of love. The love that the Father has shown to us. The love that says, I don't love you because you merit this. Rather, you are lovely because the Father has lavished his love on you. I debated whether or not to say this little sentence here, but I'm going to say it. Because a lot of us love the speaking and the writing of this person, Brene Brown. And Brene has some amazing stuff on vulnerability and, Christian, and community, rather, and all of that. It's really great. But Brene Brown's talks, on purpose probably, are missing a gospel component. Because she says, fundamentally, what humans need to know is not just that they are loved, but that they are worthy of that love, Right? And so the answer from a humanist standpoint is to just say, I am worth it, I am worth it, I am worth it, until the day you fail. And then you say, am I worth it, am I worth it, am I worth it? And so there's only so much self-talk we can do to say, I'm worth it, I'm worth it, I'm worth it. What you need is a gospel lens that says, you are lovely because the God who made you says you are has nothing to do with your behavior or your merit. It has everything to do with the Father saying, I have bestowed my love on you. And you know what? That's actually much better news. Because there's never been a moment that you have not been loved by the God who made you. There's never been a moment that you have not been loved by the God who spoke you into being. There has never been a moment that you have not been lovely because the Father has loved you. But it gets better than that. The German theologian Jürgen Moltmann said, a God who cannot suffer is a God who cannot love either. We cannot glibly say God is love and it means something without the cross. For God to say, I am love within myself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the three in one, love in loving communion and union with one another, and yet this love turned its affections onto the world that he created. That was creating the possibility that this God would suffer. Why? Because to love at all is to be vulnerable. To love at all is to make yourself vulnerable. So when we say that the God who made it all is love, we are saying that this God knew that it meant opening himself up for suffering. And this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus, because of his love, suffers on our behalf. Jesus, because of this love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for you and for me, Jesus, because of this love, comes and takes our sin upon himself. Aren't you glad that the love for you in the Godhead was not sentimentality? Aren't you glad that the love within the Godhead for you was not tolerance? 
God's saying, I don't really approve of this, but I'll tolerate it. Aren't you glad that the love within the Godhead was the love that said, I will give myself for their good? Aren't you glad that Jesus came and took the cross? Really, we could reread 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, and say, sub out the word love for the name Jesus. Because Paul says, this is how we know what love looks like. John says it. Paul says that God demonstrated his love. The New Testament echoes with this message. You want to know what love looks like, look at Jesus. And so we might say here, Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus is this. Paul makes the hinge of Christian love not reciprocity, but the cross. He says, love one another as Christ has loved you. In Ephesians 4, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. See, there comes a point in every relationship where you have to say, am I going to love them only for their sake? Or am I going to love them because Christ has loved me? That's the shift. Every human relationship will come to this testing moment where you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Up until this point, I've been loving them because they're lovely or because they also love me back. But can I love them not because I think they're lovable or lovely, but can I love them because Christ has loved? me. Church, this is why we keep coming back to the table every Sunday. We come back to the table every Sunday because it is the place where we drink again of the love of God. It is the place where we taste again and we say, God's love was so great that Jesus came, took on flesh, carried my sin, carried my unloveliness, so that I can ever and always be the beloved of God. So that I can ever and always be the beloved daughter, the beloved son, the beloved child of God. And we come to this table with hands held out. We never take communion. We always receive communion. Because with God, there's no need to take and grab and get it while you can. With God, there is only ever need to say thank you. The Eucharist is this word that means thanksgiving. This this moment in our service that we do every week is the moment where we come with grateful hearts and say, thank you, God, for loving me. I've never known a love this rich, a love this strong, a love this unfailing. Let it flood my heart as I take it in me. Let it change the very constitution of my own heart. Let it enlarge it, God, so that when I turn to others, I will be able to love them as Christ has loved me. This is why we say New Life Downtown is all about the table, the Lord's table on Sunday and your table during the week with meal groups, 
Because we receive again this grace and this mercy and this love at Jesus' great table. And then we go to our kitchen tables or chipotle tables or wherever you are. And we say, now here, let the love of God spill out of me to you and you and you. And even though I wasn't sure about you, for Christ's sake, you too. (laughs) Everyone, everyone, everyone gets in on this. Amen?